The Lifestylist, episode 36, featuring Greg Burnett. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. This here's Luke Story, and I'm here today to bring you the Lifestylist Podcast, and we're going to be talking about ranching, my friend. That's right, Western-style ranching, specifically grass-raised beef and bone broth, all right? You got that? You listen up. No, I'm serious. Today's show is about the future of ranching, grass-fed beef, and my favorite thing in the world, bone broth, for real. My interview today is with Mr. Greg Burnett from a company called Arizona Grass-Raised Beef. You guys have probably heard me talk about them because they make, in my opinion, and I've tried a lot of it, I've made my own, but they make the best bone broth I've ever had, okay? Now, because Greg's in the business, and he owns a company and all of these things are controlled by the FDA and the USDA. In this interview, he had to be sort of careful about making claims and things like that. When you're the one selling something or making something, the laws are set up to protect the public from charlatans. And as a result, there's a lot of control over what one can say. So many times during the interview, I tried to get Greg to like, tell us what it does because it's been so great for me. And he was reluctant to kind of go into details. And he's also just a gentleman. He didn't want to put down other farming practices and other people in the business, but I don't give a shit. I'll put it down. I'll tell you the real deal because I don't own a beef or bone broth company, but I have seen amazing results from using bone broth myself. There's a couple ways you can go. You can buy it from numerous companies. You can buy it from some local butchers. There's um, a butcher here in Hollywood called Belcampo. They make some fantastic bone broth. You can get a crock pot. You can make it yourself. One of these days, I'll put out a video showing you how to make it. But I just, after time making it myself, I just, I don't know, I get burned out on it. I end up spending a lot of money buying grass-fed bones, like bison bones or beef bones online, and then making it myself just for the hours I had to put in and the expense of the actual bones. I guess because I live in Hollywood and I have to order them from somewhere else. I just ended up getting it delivered frozen and I get it from Greg's company. And that's why I wanted to interview him because I found his bone broth to just be the most badass. But I can tell you some of the claims about bone broth and just my own subjective experience because I've done some research. And this is kind of a trendy new health food, quote unquote, new health food. Well, it turns out humans have been boiling the bones of animals for zillions of years, okay? So you could say bone broth is like nature's multivitamin. It's packed with over 19 easy to absorb essential and non-essential amino acids. Those are the building blocks of proteins. It's loaded with collagen and gelatin, which help form connective tissue. It's got nutrients that support digestive functions, immunity, and brain health. And bone broths also have minerals in the form that your body can actually absorb. So like calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, silicone, sulfur, all that stuff. And they've also got I can never say this goddamn word right. 
chondroitin and chondroitin sulfate and glucosamine, which is in those supplements you see at the health food store, which are for your joints. They're basically for like old people and people with arth arthritis. And oftentimes they're made out of freaking seashells or something. But if you make bone broth, you get those things in a form that your body, body can use. So I've used it to treat leaky gut syndrome. Anytime I go off the reservation and start eating weird stuff and having digestive problems, I immediately get on like full on bone broth and fix my gut. Um, people use it to overcome food intolerances and allergies, reduces cellulite, it maintains healthy skin. It's really good for your skin and your hair because of all that collagen and gelatin. And it's also just good for weird stuff like allergies, asthma, arthritis, and it also boosts detoxification. So I just want to put that out there into the world that um, bone broth is something that I really highly suggest you put into your diet, whether you make it, you buy it in any form. Uh, I would recommend if you can getting bone broth that is from grass-fed animals and grass-finished animals. We're going to talk more about that in the interview, but there's my plug for bone broth. Get it done however you get it done. Get them bones in you, right? It's really good stuff. I put it in like green smoothies and I don't know, I just put bone broth in everything. It's a really good base for any kind of soup and all sorts of stuff. I've got a, um, a recipe on YouTube called my badass bone broth. You can Google me on the internet, just put Luke Story Bone Broth, you'll find one of my recipes. But I'll, I'll do a video, like I said, soon to show you how to make your own. It's really easy. A lot of people have videos on it online, but I have a few hacks that I think you might dig. Okay, so in the interview with Greg today, we not only talk about bone broth, but really the interview is more so about you know, cattle ranching in general and the whole grass-fed beef thing. I'm sure you've seen that kind of in the market now that grass-fed, grass-finished, organic, free-range, what does all this shit mean? That's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. So Greg is, you know, he owns this company. He works with all these ranchers out in Arizona. He's got a really cool, just natural system, which to me just makes a lot of sense the way he's doing it. So it's a very interesting uh, point of view to get. So we talk about what makes grass-fed beef the best and how to farm humanely and follow the laws of nature. Why using the whole animal makes for the best bone broth. A lot of places just use a couple different bones. They use the whole animal except the skull, which you'll hear about. Why treating animals humanely is good for business. Why natural grasses are better than hay and alfalfa. Can you trust labels like organic and grass-fed? Maybe, maybe not, we'll find out. What does free range actually mean? And why does grass-fed beef taste so much better? The downside of feedlots and the symbiotic relationship between the animals and the land, and finally, how to raise and slaughter animals ethically. So this is a really interesting episode with someone that I wouldn't normally meet on the streets of Hollywood, you know what I'm saying? So I had a great time just kind of picking Greg's brain about all this stuff, and I trust that you're going to find it also very useful and informative. So to your health, and happiness. And I'll see you next week for episode 37 with Guru Jagat, where we talk about living the life of Kundalini Yoga. I want to remind you to get over to lukestory.com and to sign up for my newsletter. When you get to the homepage, you're going to see a banner front and center that says, join the tribe. Put in your email there. And every week I'm going to send you a notice when I release a new podcast, including all of the active links and show notes for anything of interest that I discuss with my guests. So you don't have to try to sit there and remember some cool vitamin or book or whatever it was that we talked about. You don't have to pull your car over, do a screen grab, take a note. You just have to kick it and wait for the emails from your old pal Luke to roll in. 
And I also managed to get you guys a sweet little offer from Arizona Grass-Raised Beef for this episode. If you go to azgrassraisedbeef.com and enter the code LIFESTYLIST, you're going to save 5%. So if some of you want to try some grass-raised beef, 100% grass-finished beef, or you want to try some of their bone broth, I would highly recommend it. Again, go to azgrassraisedbeef.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST, and you're going to save 5%. It's a sweet little hookup. All right, thanks for listening. See you on the next one. With a background in real estate and finance, Greg Burnett, the boss of Bones, is co-owner and spokesperson at Arizona Grass-Raised Beef. Along with Deborah Burnett, co-owner and chief of beef, and Tim Patterson, the master rancher, they make a strong team with one sole mission, to provide clean, 100% grass-raised, grass-finished beef and bone broth. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hi, Luke. It's been a while. It has. It's been about a year. Last time we ran into each other, I picked your brain about all things cattle raising and bone broth, and you are a wealth of knowledge, so I'm super excited to bring you to the audience. Thank you, Luke. So you've got this company, Arizona Grass-Raised Beef, which is one of the places that I get my beef. I get some here locally, but it's absolutely the only place I get my bone broth, uh, which is like a major part of my diet. So we're definitely going to get into that. But I was curious because I think you mentioned to me when we met that you didn't grow up on a farm or grow up on a ranch. So how did you get into the game of, um, of what you do now? Great question, Luke. Well, our background is finance and home building. So when the market went down five, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, we had a lot of land uh, that was zoned and, and platted for single family housing in the outskirts of uh, Arizona. And of course, when the market fell, uh, all we had left was uh, uh, some uh, empty fields, so to speak, and um, um, and roads to nowhere. So what I did to keep the taxes down is that we did a ranch overlay, and that allowed us to uh, to be able to hang out of the properties. And once we started doing that, we realized that uh, it kind of fell in with our our passion of of grass fed, grass finished beef in the first place. So we started actually raising our own cattle because of that. And then one thing led to another and we decided we wanted to to uh, sell uh, grass-fed, grass-finished beef to the masses. And uh, so we, we, uh, we realized that to do that, we'd have to have our own little USDA harvesting plant. So one thing led to another and um, here we are. So the way it works, just so I'm clear, and I'm going to be asking you a lot of clarifying questions because I know so little about farming and ranching in general, but I'm really interested in it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to be as well. So if if someone normally goes and buys some grass-fed beef or grass-raised beef or any kind of animal product for that matter, uh, typically it would be ranched and raised by someone and then hauled off to be processed and slaughtered somewhere else. But what you're saying is that you guys figured, you know, we have all this land, we might as well just get approved by the U.S. USDA and do the processing ourselves as well. Is that right? Correct. And oddly enough, in Arizona, or I should say the United States, if you have a ranch and you have grass-fed, grass-finished cattle, it would be very difficult to get them processed under those guidelines. There's really nowhere to take them. So you're being forced, or if you're in the business of cattle ranching, 
I would say 95, 98% of your cattle are going to go to feedlot operations uh, because actually that's all that exists uh, for the most part. So, of course, then it goes to the feedlot, and the feedlots are usually uh, tied in with uh, and have on site usually their own kill plant facility, their harvesting plant facility. So we are definitely an anomaly out there. There's a few of us uh, across the country but uh, not for the most part. So that's how it all came about. We had really nowhere to uh, harvest our cattle, and especially the way we do it now, of course, humanely and everything else. So we, uh, we started our own little, it's a very small, very boutique USDA processing plant. That's awesome. And it gives you much more control over the, the entire process and, of course, the end product, I'm assuming, right? Yes. So everything that we do, our whole operation is third-party verified through the American Grass Fed Association. All of our cattle have to be born and raised in Arizona. Uh, So we track every animal that we have either back to our own ranches or back to uh, our producer ranches throughout the state of Arizona. And we're currently working with approximately four to five million acres of uh, wild Arizona ranch land. So all of our cattle, of course, have to go through that process. And I actually just lost my train of thought. I forgot what the question was, Luke. (laughs) That's okay. I was talking about being more in control of the finished product when it's like you're raising the animal from the time it's born all the way through the end of its life when it becomes product that we get shipped to us or that's on a store shelf. You know, I'm imagining, in other words, if I'm picturing an animal that's going through this, this process of life and the quote unquote ownership and processing of that animal's changing multiple times between different parties, I'm assuming that there's a lot more margin for error, a loss, a degradation of quality to the end consumer. Whereas what you're doing to me seems just a lot smarter all around because you're a one-stop shop. Correct, Luke. Actually, we're completely vertically integrated. So the cattle are born and raised in Arizona to our specs, so to speak. In other words, it's a very easy spec. They have to be grass-fed and grass-finished only. And of course, they have to be raised on the natural terrain. We don't use uh, pastures. We don't use feedlots, of course. They only eat the native grasses that grows in the Arizona terrain. Of course, there are no uh, antibiotics or hormones, of course. And like I said, we don't plant any product whatsoever. They have to forage for their grasses. And of course, we brought everything in-house. So when the cattle get to our plant, we process the animals uh, from from start to finish. All of our all of our burgers, uh, we we grind ourselves. All of our meat is broken down in our plant. We send nothing out until it's the finished product. And of course, all the bones that we use in our bone broth, it's all done in house. We have. Uh, two or three different people, depending on the day, uh, that hand fabricate the bones, the tendons, the ligaments out of the cattle at our plant. And that's what we use in our little tiny USDA bone broth kitchen. So it sounds like the animal is living more of a natural life. You know, I mean, that's, I'm picturing 200 years ago, you know, millions of bison roaming around the, um, the continent freely eating whatever is there to eat. And, and not only that, but having to work for it, right? I mean, if you're not producing a pasture of grass for an animal and then saying, well, they're grass fed, you know, but it's like you're putting the grass there. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'd, I'd rather eat that personally as a consumer than GMO corn and soy and other parts of cows and God knows what, you know, is going on in some places in the world. But um, exactly. to me, that, it's, it sounds like you're, you're doing something that's more in alignment with the universal laws of the universe. You know, it's like, there's just um, natural ways to do things and unnatural ways to do things. So when I hear about somebody kind of following nature, it perks my ears up. 
Well, exactly, Luke. You know, our cattle get to be cattle. They're raised they were the way they were prior to the feedlot concept. So our cattle have to forage for native grasses. And when the grass is gone in one area, they have to move over to another area. They have to move up and down hills for water. They have to drink out of, uh, you know, stock tanks. That's it's basically a stock tank is just a hole dug to catch the rain. And then if there's not enough there, we haven't had enough rain, then of course we have some uh, wells and there's no power. So it's all solar generated. And so we can pump water out of the earth. And, um, and of course, some of the properties, some of the ranches have wonderful rivers going through them and they get to drink out of there as well. But uh, it's the way it was meant to be. I mean, the breeding occurs uh, uh, naturally. Uh, and the calving occurs naturally. And, you know, it's all old school. It's actually the, just the way it was. We've changed everything, of course, with the feedlot concept. Right. And so, you know, I think a lot of people now are aware of the use of antibiotics and hormones and and the term grass-fed is thrown around a lot. I, I have my doubts personally as to you know, some of the loopholes involved in that labeling, like organic. But, I, you know, I'm picturing a very robust, strong animal that's got to be traversing all of these millions of acres, finding its own water, finding its own food. Is it that when a cow is eating its natural diet and it's, it's truly free range, it's out on the range, not free pasture, right, that it's not eating things that its body aren't meant to process like corn and soy and grains and things like that. Do you not need antibiotics and not need growth hormones and artificial, you know, things like that to put in them because they're, they're healthy because they're natural. Is that, is that kind of how it works? You're spot on. You have to remember in Arizona, which is a, a wonderful natural place to raise grass-fed, grass-finished cattle because they're, they can free range and free roam year round. And you have to remember if we have a 100,000 acre ranch, that may only handle 600 head of cattle. So as you can see, they're not pushed together in a small area. So, uh, and you can you can just you know visualize the difference between that and of course a feedlot situation where they're actually packed together in like sardines. At least that's what I've noticed uh, in visiting feedlots over the years. And of course that just opens up a natural way of uh, of living, and uh, that's just the way it's supposed to be. Uh, again, we feel it's our opinion that we're way beyond organic because it's just the natural way that they're grown. To me. I think the term organic is overused. You know, we see a lot of cattle raised uh, for mass production purposes. We see them raised on pastures where you have to plant the alfalfa. You have to plant what they're eating. They don't have to forage. They don't even have to move. They go to the bathroom, the same spot they're eating. And I realize that's a, it's a heavy term they use nowadays, but we just don't do it. And we, it's just the way it always was. And so it's not this unusual thing that we're doing now. It's what the way it used to be. So, and of course, Arizona lends itself to that too because of our mild climate. You know, we don't have to put them in barns uh, during the winter time. We don't. We don't have to plant grasses for them to grow because the snow is covering it. Uh, we don't use silage uh, to feed our animals. As a matter of fact, we don't feed them anything. They have to truly roam for their food. And of course, we feel that that comes out in the taste of the animal, um, the health of the animal. It's not a wild taste it's just a earthy taste as far as we're concerned and you can just taste the taste the freshness uh, the color of the meat is different for goodness sakes so the the fat that you see on the animal is different I can vouch for the taste because I've had your beef and it's delicious the more you talk about it I'm like hmm we might make this a short interview <laughs> so yeah I'm getting hungry too Luke <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. 
I made myself a green a green smoothie before the recording. And I'm like, yeah, that's already gone. So, so what you know, what I'm picturing is something that's good for the animal. It's good for the human beings that are consuming that animal on the other end. What do you think goes on in terms of the environment? Because I know, you know, as a kid growing up around a lot of farms and a lot of cows, I always say like I'm from a cow town in in Northern California, which essentially I am. I mean, there's tons of farms and. If you drive by a feedlot, like between LA and San Francisco, for example, I mean, there's a stench in the air for probably a five-mile stretch around that. And growing up, um, you know, around farms, I would see them growing a lot of alfalfa. And it's like man has has really had to work hard to feed all of these people. So, I mean, do you think there's enough land around where every farmer could turn into a, a wild, free-range kind of farmer like you and feed everyone? Or, or are there just too many people where we still need some kind of artificial environment to raise enough animals to feed everyone? Well, it's a difficult question to I mean, answer, I know it's, I a, think. it's a question I, you I, probably can't answer, but I mean, what, well, what, do you, what do you think from your perspective, even if it's wrong, just you know, how you, where you're sitting right now? In my opinion, I think that you have to remember where the United States is, is raising cattle not just to feed the United States. It's a big business. Uh, the United States ships beef, ships cattle all over the world. Uh, it's truly a, a very big business and, and money talks. So do we have enough cattle in the United States to feed the United States? I probably say, would say we do, but the money is not there on a mass production basis. So, um, you know, once you get that involved, I think that kind of changes the, the way people look at things. There's a lot of cattle that the calves are taken away from their mother way too early, uh, force-fed, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm surely not saying that that's all what feedlots are all about. It's just not our practices to do such a thing. And uh, it's just, again, it's just not natural. And I personally would think feedlots, in my opinion, surely cannot be good for the environment. But uh, again, that's just, that's just my opinion and uh, just my observation. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of talk, you know, nowadays, of course, about the environment and the different ways that agriculture in general and farming affect the environment. And there's a lot of people, I think, on the on the vegan side that are, you know, very strongly opinionated in in, in the idea that any sort of um, animal farming destroys the environment. And I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not scientifically. Um, you, you know, validated to to comment on that. I really don't understand, but it, it seems to me that if animals are being raised in a natural way, that they're not destroying the land. But I mean, a feedlot full of pigs or cattle and their feces is making rivers and going into the Gulf of Mexico and some of the atrocious things going on. I mean, it seems that can't be good for um, the environment. But then again, monocrops of kale and carrots or whatever that are fertilized with God knows what and sprayed with pesticides probably aren't good either. Do you think, I mean, how does the land look, you know, where you are with all of these cattle roaming around? I mean, are they tilling the earth and kind of you know, encouraging grass to regrow because they're fertilizing it. I mean, it seems like there's a natural sort of cycle to grazing when you let the animal out and just do what it's supposed to do. Oh, there's no question about it. And I think the way to, to look at that is just basically visualize, if you could, 100,000 acres, and that's only, you can only raise 600 animals on that particular piece. So that kind of gives you the visualization. 100,000 acres is, is a lot of dirt. And and you're only raising 600 cattle on that. Now, there's some places 
places are different uh, with a lot of grass up in per- northern Arizona. Uh, th- there might be uh, 2,000 head of cattle on 100,000 acres. But again, uh, you can just see 2,000, 100,000 acres. Uh, they have plenty of, uh, of area to roam. And, and they actually serve a purpose. Uh, the reason why the government allows ranchers like us in Arizona to ranch is that they want the grass to be eaten. It's just, it's just a natural thing. They want to keep the fire hazards down uh, that don't spread across Arizona uh, and other parts of the country where it's good for those cattle to go in there and eat in certain areas. And then when that grass is gone, they move to another area. And of course, they do fertilize the earth because of the, obviously they're going to the bathroom all over the place, but it, it's not in a concentrated area. I mean, you could you could walk for miles before you saw a cow pie and then another mile to find another cow pie. So I would think sometimes the environmentalists take it a little bit too far. If the animals are raised naturally, it's actually very good for the environment. And I, I think most of them would... Uh, attest to that. I think it's when you get into the the ranching of it and turns into a farming process. And uh, uh, that's where you really get into trouble. And again, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, like I said, if it's if there's any doubt, just follow nature. And even, you know, like I said, a monocrop of, you know, 150 acres of kale is not natural either. And I know there's too many damn people. I'm mean, not that idealistic. You know, I know there's too many people on the planet for us to all forage wild foods and live like that. We've we've passed the threshold of population to be able to do that. But, you know, I am concerned about um, not only my health, but the health of other people and the health and well-being of the animals and the planet. And so, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm just always curious uh, for the different opinions because everyone seems to have very strong opinions about what the answer is. And um, to me, going closer to nature, you know, at least if we can aim for that, is getting closer to whatever that answer is. Definitely agree. So in terms of grass-fed, you know, this is something that's become quite common. If I'm allowed to, I live out in the country and I have cattle, you know, it's a few head of cattle that I want to raise and slaughter and market as grass-fed. What are the requirements in order for me to like put that on the label? Does that mean that I can just feed them grass for a month and then for the rest of their life I can feed them GMO soy and still stamp a grass-fed tag on that? Like how strict is that term and can I as a consumer can I believe that anytime I hear it? And I noticed that you use grass-fed and grass-finished which I've seen and I don't think you know that many of our listeners might even be aware that that there's a difference. Like how does the the labeling work with that? Yes, and that's a great question, Luke. And uh, I'm, my answer is, boy, is it loosey goosey. <laughs> uh, it's the labeling is is crazy out there, and I'm not an expert on the labeling. We just know that if you all cattle are born to eat grass. And all cattle usually start out eating grass. Now, if that's grown grass or native grasses, you know, that, that could be argued, I don't know. Uh, it's when they get to the feedlots that the dynamics of what they get fed change. But as far as labeling goes, um, in my opinion, there's just a lot of, um, I'd say, games being played to a certain degree. Uh, I see a lot of people calling their animals grass-fed, well, and that's all true. Like I said, all animals are grass-fed when they're born, but the key is the grass finishing. So what that really should mean, and I don't know exactly uh, all the labeling scenarios, but grass finish means the cattle never eats anything 
that's not grass its entire life. From, uh, from when born to when harvested, it should be grass-fed as they're, uh, as they're aging and grass-finished uh, throughout their life. And that doesn't mean force-feeding them grass that's grown. It should just be natural. I mean, they, they should be foraging and, and eating the native grasses. Uh, so the way we do it, it's strictly foraging, grass-fed, grass-finished. And the same thing, I, I always wonder with organic too, because sometimes I'll see like organic beef, for example, but it doesn't necessarily say grass-fed. So I always wonder, well, you know, does that mean that they're getting, um, you know, organic grains? And I guess that's probably what that means. And I don't, I don't want to eat like, the, it's the fat of the animal that I'm concerned with. Like if you feed an animal grains, you're going to get a different fat profile. You're going to get a bunch of omega-6. It's going to be very inflammatory and unhealthy. And that's where I think a lot of the... The gripe that people have about you know the meat being bad for you—it's not that meat or fat from the meat is bad for you. It's if the animal ate something that it's not inherently born to eat that that fat and that meat becomes bad for you. But I've gotten kind of duped. I'll be eating some organic meat. I'm like, well, wait a minute—it didn't say grass finished, so it could just be like, hopefully that they're eating organic feed, but it's not actually feed that that animal in nature would ever eat. So there's so many of these nuances that the consumer, I think, really has to be careful. And um, there's a lot of advocates now that are you know, coming out and sort of exposing some of the, the loopholes in the labeling. I mean, I'm assuming that a company like yours that's saying, so, you know, you're telling me and telling listeners, like, listen, we're, we're in control of this process the whole way and the entire life of an animal, all it's eating is natural grass. Could you have a, a ranch and call it grass-fed and grass-finished, but just be lying? Not you, but could one do that and just make it up? Or is there, is there some kind of regulatory um, you know, administration that's checking on this stuff? Or are we just supposed to you know, hope for the best as consumers? Yeah, well, another good question. And, and uh, again, we uh, since uh, we didn't need to become experts in labeling because ours is so natural that uh, we didn't have to check into all that. And I, frankly, I don't know all the rules of labeling. Uh, I I can only speak for how we do it. I mean, we, we feel we go way beyond the organic labeling type of scenario because not only do we not feed them corns or uh, byproducts out there. We don't plant any grasses for them. So um, I believe you can label something grass-fed and grass-finished. And, and, and I would, I'd be pretty certain if you call it grass-fed, grass-finished, then I, I doubt that you're going to see any corn in that product. And I think that is regulated. And uh, how the inspection process goes, you know, I just don't know. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. But we just feel one step further, uh, because we don't believe in pasturing animals, is that if the grass isn't naturally growing, then the cattle have to be able to move and forage elsewhere. And if they're in a pasture, it may be grass-fed, grass-finished, but it's still planted grass. And uh, they're just not moving around for it, so to speak. And maybe the grasses are not a natural grasses that they're eating. Maybe it's a grass that's, uh, you know, superhuman raised. You know, I, I don't know. And, and we kind of stay away from that because we are, we are surely not in that arena. So I, I don't want to say anything out of line because I just don't know how other people are doing it. But if they're not free range and free roaming, it wouldn't meet our specs. And I, I could just leave it with that on that on that topic. Yeah. 
I appreciate that you're such a gentleman, Greg, and you don't want to put down your own industry or other people and you can only speak for your own stuff. I think I'm just a bit of a, of a rebel rouser and I'm always wanted to expose the truth for the listener, you know, but I get it. I mean, listen, you guys are flying under the radar in terms of all that drama because you're just doing it the right way, period. So there's no need to really be concerned about what everyone else is doing. You just focus on doing it the right way, which I totally respect. Um, Thank you. I, I, yeah, and it's, you know, that's why I like highlighting businesses like yours um, that are, you know, ethical and doing it right. Now, speaking of ethical, I've always been curious because, you know, being raised as, as an American kid in the 70s, and uh, like I said, being around farms to a degree and, and living in rural areas, but the way that our food system has been set up and the industrialized farms and all this, we have no idea how an animal actually dies. And this is something I've, I've struggled with because I, I was a vegetarian for 10 years. I, I love animals. I love cats and dogs and, and horses and cows and all of them. Uh, but I figured out for myself personally, and this is just my own journey, that my body doesn't really function well on the foods that are available to eat without animal products in my diet. And it's been like a... You know, being a California kind of hippie kid, it's it's taken some intellectual and spiritual work for me to kind of get thirty thousand feet up and and look at humans eating animals. But one thing that we we don't really ever see is we don't see slaughterhouses. And I personally really don't know technically how an animal is ethically slaughtered and processed. And I don't think most people outside of the industry do. And I would I would dare say a lot of us don't even want to think about it unless we're hunters and we really live close to the land and that's part of our upbringing. And, you know, when we were a little kid, our grandma was chopping the heads off chickens in the yard and that was just part of our culture. My culture was grocery store culture and you go buy some meat, you know, in a package from the store, but there's a real disconnect between the life of that animal and I don't know how to say it, the spiritual connection to that animal and how its life is taken for the benefit of your life. So how are your animals actually slaughtered when it comes time for them to end their life and, and donate themselves to us? How does that work? Well, if you can imagine, Luke, you know, we, uh, in, in, I'll, 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 the best way for me to explain that is to show uh, how we do it compared to a, a feedlot operation. Uh, uh, we kill one animal at a time. And of course, we are USDA inspected, so our animal is looked at from the time it's uh, we bring it to the harvesting plant until it's uh, till it's put in packages and sent to our customers. So we kill one at a time. We harvest one animal at a time. We follow the Temple Grandin. Um, method design the humanely handling of the animal one goes through the shoot at one time it's a calming effect it's you know it's of course it's just the way it's supposed to be done you know you as far as the taste of the product is you know you don't want that lactic acid you know run it running through the body so you really want to you know calm the animal down and of course it's obviously much more humane um and i really i preface that with how the feedlots do it I really don't know exactly how the feedlots do it. I just know it's loud, and they're processing a lot of them at the same time, and uh, it just doesn't seem healthy. Now, again, I'm sure there's facilities out there that are that handle it extremely humane. I'm just not aware, and it's really just not our uh, my background to understand that. I never I never grew up in that field, but we just knew it's better for the animal. It's uh, it makes us feel better, and we know it's it produces better food, uh, the quality wise if uh, if we do it humanely. So it just it's yeah. just kind of a, a full circle. It works out quite well. 
Yeah, that totally that totally makes sense. I mean, if you have a terrified animal, it's like a horror movie. I'm actually, you know, yes. that's why I, that's why I've, one of the main reasons I became a vegetarian years ago is because I saw this documentary called uh, Earthlings, and it was, I mean, it was an is interesting viewpoint on how humans relate to animals in in multitudes of ways, not just um, not just eating them, but there was all this underground, like hidden camera footage of slaughterhouses and stuff, and it was just like, I mean, it was horrific the way that the animals were treated and specifically how they were slaughtered. And it was just, I mean, from that day on, I don't think I ate meat for 10 years or something. You know, it was just, it was that, that scary. It was like a horror movie. And I'm realizing that, you know, going back, if you think about just indigenous people around the world that have um, taken the life of an animal in a more sacred, um, humane way, like in the Native American kind of tradition, or, you know, my dad being a hunter for a long time. I mean, there was no torture involved. The animals sitting there not knowing that anything's happening. Next thing you know, it's lost consciousness and soon thereafter becomes food. It's not like being terrorized at the point of its life ending, you know? So to me, that no makes question. a lot of and sense. No question. And you have to think about the whole process. So right away, if the cattle are coming off these ranges where they're not stacked together in, in, in between some fence rails, they're already relaxed. They're naturally more relaxed just because they're not, they don't come from a naturally noisy background. They're not stacked together. So therefore, you start out with an animal that already has a, has a good uh, disposition, so to speak. So when you have that, it's it's easier, much easier to humanely kill them, just the way they were brought up. Again, I don't know a lot about feedlots, but I do know that it's just not that same environment <laughs> when you go to a feedlot. It uh, it's it's a it's just a different environment. So yeah. if they're raised at old school, it allows you to easily harvest them. Uh, old school, uh, yeah. one at a time, and um, and it's just again, it just goes back to the the, the feel. I mean, it's, a, it's just how it happens when you start out with a wild raising way of, of of growing the animal in the first place. The method that you talked about when you actually take the animal's life uh, is that the thing from the movie uh, No Country for Old Men that. <laughs> that like <laughs> I don't know how to describe it for anyone that's seen the film. Is that is that what that thing is? It's not a gun. It's it's like a um, it's like a hydraulic punch kind of thing. Is that what that is? Yes, or, yeah, it, okay. it, it is. So so um, actually, it's funny. Um, again, as you know, we're one of a few USDA plants, boutique USDA plants in the United States. So we've had many USDA inspectors across the the country, from Washington D.C. on down, come out to our plant and visit our plant and. And uh, since our background has been in construction and that, we've, we've made a lot of our own systems of, on how we do things, how we build our panels. Uh, we have a system in our actual harvesting when they're coming through the chute where their head moves into this particular area when they're at the end of the chute. And then this, this locking mechanisms, it just starts going, it's, it's padded and it just starts going around their, their head, so to speak. And about the time it's going to actually completely close, of course, then that uh, old country for old men utensil come, <laughs> comes into play. And of course, they don't even see that because our harvesting individual is standing above them. So they don't even see that gentleman. They never, they never get to see a human being at the very end, which is wonderful. That's really what you want. You don't want them walking up to an individual. They, that would not be natural for them. So they never see the person that uh, finishes the final blow, so to speak. It comes from above and it's very quite natural how you and you see it. As, you know, there's no shotgun involved. 
Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So I, again, I and I'm not I'm not an expert on, on a feedlot scenario. I do not know exactly how they do it through their with their types of shoots. I just know it's it 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 feels like and seems like and looks like it's total chaos. But again, production is much smaller and um, it's one at a time. Yeah. Well, having spent a lot of my early years around rodeos, um, I can tell you when animals are you know, handled even just in that capacity, there's a lot of clanking gates, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of cat- electric cattle prods. It's just like the animals are literally being tortured, you know, just from the sheer noise and the numbers and being crammed together and being moved around and you know, just it's just like a very abrasive kind of environment, even in that. So I can only imagine what goes on kind of behind some of the closed doors. But what what you just described, while you're describing that, I'm thinking, hmm, okay, how to? Because we're an animal, right? And we have the technology to take out another animal. But we also have this sort of higher spiritual point of view where we we don't want to torture that animal, right? Correct. And and then, but I'm what I'm picturing when you're talking about the animal not even seeing your your guy coming from above is I'm picturing a pack of lions taking down a gazelle on the Discovery Channel and what a brutal, savage, murderous act that is. So it's like, you know, if you think about how other animals other than us take out other animals as life forms, as forms of energy to then consume to become their own energy, I mean, I think nature is actually much more brutal. Oh, no question. No, no question. I, mean, like, I, I turn off those shows. My kids watch that. I, I just can't take it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, watch I, it. You know, that's not what happens in the plant in any way, shape, or form. That would be, uh, that'd be pretty scary. Watch a grizzly bear um, hunting for salmon, you know? <laughs> no like, question. You know, no question. And, and, you know, if there's someone who is adamantly against eating meat listening, they probably haven't made it this far into the interview anyway, but you know, it could sound like a, a <laughs> justification, but I just like to have a broad sort of perspective on things and look at it from all angles because I don't know, it's just the way that my mind works. It's like, well, how do animals do it? If we're an animal, we're actually smart enough to do it in a way that is not, um, you know, maniacal and mean. And so I, I really respect that. It's cool. I mean, I think that it's really neat that there are people like you and companies like you that are ethical, not only to the end consumer, but also to the animal. Because I don't, I don't think anyone inherently wants to inflict pain and suffering on another sentient being, if at all possible. Oh, I'd have to agree with that. And of course, what we try to do is that, remember, we don't feed them uh, other than what's already grown. And uh, so we only bring to the plant the, the animals that are going to be harvested that day or we bring them the night before. Uh, so we never have too many animals there at, at one time, of course, because that gets them nervous too when they're when they're pushed together to, to a degree. I mean, they do in nature; they do travel around in packs to a degree, but uh, uh, always just because they follow a leader. But if you have too many in a penned-up area just before the harvest, that again would make them a little bit nervous, and uh, they would get scared, and of course, that causes problems. Right. Okay, cool. Well, I'd like to take a, a turn here. And, you know, really one of the main things I want to interview about is is bone broth because this is, I like, you just have the market cornered so well here. And it's just such a healing and nurturing food that I want to make sure that people are aware of and really dig into that. But I had to cover some of the basis of the beef part too because man cannot live on broth alone. I've tried it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I've, I I've, love that. I've tried it, but I'll, I'll probably end up naming the interview like something bone broth. You know, because that's it's something that people are becoming increasingly interested in. So I, I want to pivot here and, and go into that because um, what I think is so cool too, and this goes back to sort of that that Native American 
uh, tradition of using the whole animal, right? So it's like you could slaughter a cow and just take the muscle meat and maybe the organs and sell those. And then, I don't know, you just you throw the bones in a garbage heap or they, I guess you sell them to dog food companies or whatever to make chew toys out of or something. But uh, to me, taking the bones of the animal then and then rendering more food, more nutrition for the end consumer is a really holistic way to approach it. And I remember when I first met you, you were explaining that your bone broth is full spectrum, meaning that it uses the entire skeleton and all of that, with the exception of the head, which I felt kind of comforting. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if I want a boiled head in my soup, you know. <laughs> but uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, why you guys elected as you went into business to even make bone broth. How, how soon into the company did that happen? Well, actually, it was, uh, I was very aware of bone broth, uh, when we started a couple, what has it been, two and a half years now. And, uh, but, um, of course, we knew at that time we were also building out the USDA plant. And, of course, the, the focus was, was going to be the cattle, of course. And then the more and more I started reading about the bone broth, I, of course, the immediate question to me was, well, where are people getting these bones? Because if you're, if you're making good uh, beef bone broth, you're brewing those bones for at least three days. And so if I'm going to drink bone broth uh, for my health and I'm going to brew something for three days where the bones actually start falling apart and, and start to turn into powder to, to a degree, I want to make sure those bones do not come from a feedlot under no uncertain terms. So that's kind of the beauty of how we people started following us because of what we make, because we have our own USDA harvesting plant, and, and we only use our harvesting plant for our animals. So we know what's going through the blades. We know exactly what's coming out. We know what meat we're uh, breaking down and cutting into steaks and burgers. It's all coming from us. So uh, we know that there's not a, a feedlot animal in the group and we never shut down the plant in the day and then start cutting uh, feedlot animals at night. We, we don't even uh, process anybody else's uh, so-called grass-fed, grass-finished beef if it doesn't come through our producer ranchers and it, and it has to be for us. So... How, or that getting back to the bones, so we actually uh, in our harvesting plant we hand fabricate out the bones, the ligaments, the tendons, and instead of using just femurs and knuckles, which are phenomenal bones, because we have all these bones, we use the full bone spectrum in our bone broth. So we we're from hooves to the oxtail. Uh, the only thing we don't use in the bone spectrum is we do not use the backbone. So we take the backbone out. It's pretty much a USDA regulation. You could use the backbone if the cattle was uh, under, uh, I think it's 30, 30 months or 36 months, but we just decided, you know, let's just, let's just remove the backbone and never have a concern of that. So in essence, we use all the bones uh, of the animal body. And uh, uh, as you know, uh, every bone uh, has its own nutrient spectrum. And of course, on top of that, we have a lot of bones. So when we go to make our bone broth, we use you know, several hundred pounds of bones per batch. And it's a, bones from, uh, it's a full bone spectrum. So you are getting all those nutrients across the whole animal. So it's, we're very proud of it because we, we definitely know where our bones are coming from. And we, we, use, you know, we don't use just the femur and knuckle. I think everybody 
they talk about that a lot in the press about how good the femur and knuckle is, and, and it is good. It has a lot of gelatinous uh, attributes to it, but they don't talk about the other because nobody uses them because nobody has them. Um, so uh, we're very proud, and we, and of course, we state that we, we we think our bone broth is the best in the world, Luke. So there, there, there you have it. We we stand behind it, and of course, we take our bones and we take them to our. Uh, it's another one of those little boutique spots where it's a USDA kitchen, um, and the kitchen only makes bone broth. So it's our kitchen. So we bring in our bones and tendons and ligaments. We roast them, and then we brew them for approximately, well, it's not approximately, it's a minimum of three days. Sometimes that overflows a little bit, three, three and a quarter, three and a half days. And then we uh, put them in 32-ounce containers, and at the very bottom of our uh, brewing vats, or steam kettles, uh, when the broth is all gone, because it all comes from the bottom up, uh, you'll see this really wonderful yellow fat that was actually in the bones uh, and, and attached to the tendons and ligaments. And we, we take that fat and we top off all of our quarts of broth. And, uh, you know, it's just wonderful because it's just this phenomenal fat. As a matter of fact, uh, well, I'm digressing a little bit, but sometimes when I bring some of the broth home, if, if there's a lot of fat on top of it, I take and chunk some of the fat out and I put that on my face. I mean, that's just, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, uh, it's another conversation. I don't want people to hang up on us right now. I want them to finish listening. So I'll stick with the, uh, the pro- procedure. But uh, we do that for two reasons. One, it somewhat, it hermetically seals the broth in our container. Um, and then of course, we, of course, we flash freeze everything right then and there. Uh, Um, uh, after we do all this. But the other thing is, uh, and you know in this world of uh, changing diets, we've all come to realize that good, healthy, saturated fats, based on what the source of the fat is, is wonderful for your body. So we encourage people to, uh, when they buy our bone broth, we encourage them to actually stir the fat in when they're heating up the bone broth. And um, and again, you, you have more probably knowledge than I do on all the health benefits of that fat, in addition to the incredible health benefits of the bone broth itself. Well, that's, yeah, there's, there's so much to unpack there. Um, first off is the, the way that I first started doing bone broth is I would order my like grass-fed bison bones or, or beef bones. And you're right, they would only ever send the knuckles and the femurs, which I thought was interesting because I always wondered why don't, I thought, well, the rest of the bones just must not be any good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's why they're doing it. But why they're not doing it is because they don't have, they actually don't have the whole skeleton there at their disposal or they don't Correct. see the value in it. And what's super scary to me is having bone broth that is from factory farm animals. Like I, I literally would not, that's like eating at McDonald's. I would not drink that bone broth. And just to the listener, I already said I love your bone broth is my favorite. So, you know, I'm I'm guilty of promoting you because I think it's the best ever that I've ever had. But I would I would seriously consider like not having bone broth because to me, you know, the bones and the marrow and all that gelatinous good stuff that we want in our bone broth, if that comes from an inferior animal that's really toxic, you're getting like concentrated toxins that are in that animal's body that have accumulated, bioaccumulated over a long period of time. So it's it's almost to me like a much worse idea than even just eating a regular burger. You know, it's like oh no question. You know, because you're bo- you're boiling all of those kind of anti nutrients out of the bones, and that's becoming this like sludge soup. It just totally grosses me out. So that's. 
the first thing I want to say. Um, the other thing is, you know, is that just to give an overview on the whole bone broth thing, in case there's someone listening, you know, this is kind of a, a newer trend in in health, and even I've known actually quite a few vegans personally that have. You know, had had some health problems as a result of nutrient deficiencies on that diet, and they've had to merge bone broth into their diet just to, in order to be able to kind of keep living that plant-based lifestyle. That's, I mean, that's how nutritious it is. But what I'm saying is, I mean, I think even some people that are more vegetarian bent or lean that way are now seeing that the undisputable health benefits um, and just the nutrient profile in bone broth. But it seems like a new phenomenon. But I want everyone to think back, you know, to Jewish penicillin, you know, to uh, chicken soup and this, you know, when you're a little kid, at least for me, granny was always like, I'm not even Jewish, but I knew that it was called that. She's like, oh, have some soup. It's always about the soup. You know, it's like, why have human beings in, in so many of our cultures been all about soup, especially when you need to heal and, you know, come to find out, well, human beings have been boiling bones as far back as history goes and, and drinking that broth as part of their everyday diet, just like... When human beings have been eating animals, it's it used to be that the organs were the prized part of the animal, and and the muscle meat that we now you know go after was actually what you give the the dogs around the camp, you know. So it's correct, like everything correct. everything's kind of gotten a, a bit backwards in that way. But I want to you know just acknowledge that bone broth is not a new thing; it's not a new trend. It's it's sort of a new discovery as we found that our our modern diets are so deficient in so many of these key nutrients, including as you mentioned that fat the that's so rich in omega-3s. And a lot of people are still coming out of the hangover of the 80s when this low-fat, no-fat thing that fat gives you cholesterol and that gives you a heart attack and this whole propaganda um, that was bestowed upon us as consumers. You know, the bad fat comes from bad bones from animals that have been not eating grass, you know, just to be clear. And and what I got to say, just as a personal testimony to um, to bone broth is, my gut has had a lot of problems in my life just from growing up on glyphosate sprayed flour and copious amounts of white sugar and God knows what else um, that I've really had to work with probiotics, you know, like raw goat kefir and um, fermented vegetables and, and all that kind of stuff to rebuild my gut. But bone broth has, has done wonders for me in terms of just digestive issues. It's crazy. And it's, it's like one of the only variables that I changed and I even sometimes, and I hate to admit this because any of my friends or listeners, you know, know I'm always like, oh, don't eat gluten, don't eat grains and all this stuff. But I have a relapse here or there on gluten, okay? It just happens sometimes. In fact, <laughs> it happened, happened last week. I was teaching a class and I walked by the little brownie station or whatever. And I was just, you know, I had a food craving. I fell. I ate like a few, um, not brownies, though, what are they? Cupcakes. And I just pounded a few cupcakes. And then I already did that. So I had a piece of French bread later. And sure enough, I start having digestive problems two or three days later and I got on bone broth and it went away. Like I, I fixed whatever was going on there. So it's just, it's magical stuff. And I'm no, I'm just, no question. You know, and as a testament to that, uh, you know, we never get involved. We're not doctors. We're, we're not nutritionists. We don't really too much get involved in, in uh, the, the, the so-called health benefits of it. We, we know that they are many and it's more, more of a testament of people calling us and telling us the same story that you just told. I mean, uh, it's just phenomenal to me in the and it just gives me this incredibly warm feeling. I know I sound like an advertisement for our company, but when I get these calls from people that are telling me, I have this, I have leukemia, I have this, and 
and how much they believe that the bone broth is making them feel better. And, and again, we're not doctors, but we hear some phenomenal stories and, and we just love it. I mean, that's, that's the good news about what we're doing. We hear all these great things and, and, uh, and I think it resonates with people that, especially if they have illnesses, that it, you need to make sure that the bones that you're getting and the process and how it's brewed is authentic. And again, I don't really know how our competition does it. I really don't really look at that much. I, I just know that you have to have a good source of bones, and, and, and I'm not really sure where everybody's getting their bones. I'm, I really don't even understand it because there's only so many USDA processing plants that, that strictly are grass-fed, grass-finished. So I'm not sure where everybody gets the bones, but you just have to be aware of that. Uh, I, I think out there as the consumers, you know, just be cautious. And of course, uh, we do know that people get the bones from all over the place. And of course, they send them out to third-party processing. So the broth isn't even made uh, on their campus, so to speak. So we're we're very cautious of that. Obviously, we are growing. And uh, uh, what we are doing is we're growing our internally in our own plant. We're, 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 we're trying to expand and build on just so we have room for more brew kettles because um, you know, we don't want to send it out somewhere else that we're not in complete control and, and have it made. And, uh, and of course, um, the laws have changed very recently. Uh, our bone broth kitchen is now USDA inspected. So we literally have an inspector in there while we're making our bone broth and while we're packaging it, which we love. It just It's another way of helping uh, control that the process is done right. Uh, they're changing the rules and regs where if you're selling retail, your broth has to come from a USDA commercial kitchen. And uh, we are that. That all just has happened recently. And we're okay with that. It's just another, you know, way of making sure that what people are getting is, is authentic. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're also... I said a lot there. I'm, I said a no, lot there. No, it's Greg. good. I want, I want a lot, Greg. That's the, I love it, dude. You're always apologizing. I'm like, uh, no, that's why I'm interviewing you, man. Oh, um, funny. But listen, here's the deal. Because when I first you know, heard about bone broth and started hearing about Weston Price and just all of this sort of you know ancient wisdom kind of diet stuff and paleo stuff, I started making it myself. And I, I just want to make a recommendation for someone if, if, if you don't have the means or... Uh, whatever at the moment to to order it, you know, pre-made, which is obviously the most convenient, and I think you know, in some cases, the healthiest. What I used to do it is I would go to farmers markets. You know, there's one here in Hollywood, and I mean, you can go meet the farmer. You know, and be like, what water are your cattle drinking? You know, are these your bones? What are they eating? I mean, you know, and there and there's some ethical people, and they'll be really honest with you. So I would go get my own bones. But then the thing about it is, is that you know, you got to throw it in a, cock, a crock pot, and then you got to really watch what kind of water you're using. You know. I would, of course, use spring water, but then you're sitting there for three days. You know, you gotta you gotta um, roast the bones first to kind of you know get them ready to be boiled. Then you gotta watch it for three days, and I'm leaving the house with the crock pot on too high. And I mean, it's a it's a bit of a process, and it's really messy, and it smells up your kitchen. Um, and you know, the the fat that comes off, you gotta when you pour it out into your little containers to then put it in your freezer, you can't get the fat right, and it gets a little, you know, it's like it's a process. And I was all gung ho for a while, and then I found you guys. I was like, yeah, I'm done making it. 
it myself. But you know, I want people to know that it, you know I would really check the sources and be careful with the water. But it is something you can do at home. If you're someone that likes to cook, you might get into it. I, I just I'm not a guy that likes cooking. I barely like eating. You know, I mean, I do it because the body calls for it, and I enjoy a good meal like anyone. But it's it's not like a big part of my life. I'm not a big foodie. But here's here's one thing that that happened with me was that. Um, you know, I got tested for lead and I was really high in, in lead. And I'm like, God, I'm, I've been detoxing for years and taking all these saunas and fasts and everything else. And I have a sneaking suspicion that some of the crock pots that are made out of ceramic might actually have some lead in the paint. And, and I've been researching mine, trying to figure it out. But if you don't have, you know, a ceramic with lead, you also have to be careful about the really cheap cookware you're using. A lot of people don't realize you're going to be boiling, you know, your bones, say, for three days, even if you did it on a stove. If you're using some really cheap cookware from Target that's made out of aluminum and nickel and all these kind of amalgam metals, you're actually infusing your bone broth with heavy metals, which is not good, you know? So, no question. So the whole process is really, you know, there's really a lot to it. And, uh, and I also remember asking you, and I, I I think I had this right because I, you know, I'm like a real stickler for water, man. Because it's it's just one of the most important health practices to me is watching the water, not only that you drink, but that you bathe in and that your food is cooked with. And I think you told me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys are using well water that's then filtered or, or reverse osmosis or something like that. Correct, correct. So, so we use well water, and it's triple filtered is the is, is the correct lingo for it, and. And I'm not sure which each one of those three filtration systems does, but it comes out to be a very, very clean water. And of course, we start with well water in the first place. We, I just think you could change the dynamics of it if you started using uh, city city uh, tap water. I, uh, yeah, I think that would just add to the problem. So all you yes, had to tell all you had to tell me was you're, you're using well water. I'm like, if you use well water, yes, I'm yes. fine. The fact that you're filtering it too, hey, that's cool. There could be you know too much iron in it or whatever. I mean, I'm fine, but. There, there used to be a really great butcher here in LA. They've since closed right in Hollywood called Lindy and Grundy. And they, I mean, they were they were very particular about the farms that they worked with, and they they had a lot of integrity. And it was just a great shop. And they and they sold bone broth. And I used to go in there and get it. And then one day I was I was waiting in line and I looked over and they butchered everything. Right, it was like a, a legit old school butcher shop. You'd watch them bring in a half a cow and just butcher it right there in front of you. I love it. But one day I looked over and I and I saw them making a huge bat of this bone broth. They're throwing all these femurs in. There and stuff, and then I see them uh, put it on, you know, under the sink and just start pouring uh, LA tap water in there for the water. <laughs> I was like, that was the last day I ever had that bone broth. I'm like, Man, you do, you do not want to be um, drinking, you know, quart upon quart of LA tap water. So, you know, I, I think more and more people now are kind of becoming aware of the whole process, and you know, not like you got to be so paranoid all the time. Like I said the other day, I had a bunch of gluten cupcakes, and I was willing to pay the price because it felt like a good idea, you know, a good idea at the moment. But, you know, if you can find the best source for something, then I think you just stick with that. Like why reinvent the wheel? It's just once you, f- I'm, I'm this way, like I look for the best of all products and all food. And then once I believe that I found it until I'm proven wrong, I just do that. And so, um, you know, that's why I was just so excited to have you on because anyone that's kind of tried a few different bone broths, once they try uh, yours, I have to say, it's so much different, and I think it has to do with the full-spectrum bone profile, is that it's like a dark uh, caramel color. And once you thaw it out, it's like jello. It's not liquidy. Like Sometimes you buy like a pre-made bone broth, and it's more like um, stock that you'd get. You know, like you go to Whole Foods, you get chicken stock or something. It's watery. It's like 
it's not actually, it doesn't have that collagen and that gelatin in it. It doesn't seem like yours is like this um, dark brown jello, you know? And it's like, uh, when, when I make it, I got a, a friend of mine turned me on to uh, this natural liquid smoke. And I have this great recipe where I'll put some ghee in there, some grass-fed ghee. And then I put some liquid smoke, a little bit of sea salt, very simple recipe. And it's like, I can basically live off that stuff. I mean, maybe I put a little extra um, uh, collagen protein in there sometimes just to give me a little more protein, but I mean, it's just unbelievable. So I'm, I'm so grateful Thank that you. you guys are doing what you do. Thank you, Luke. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I think we can probably wrap it up, man. I covered the beef. I covered the farming, the ranching. We got the bone broth. We've geeked out pretty hard on the whole deal here. I love it. I love it. I really enjoyed myself. It's a great talk. Awesome, Greg. So as we wrap up, I'd like to ask you, as you've been our teacher here, teaching us about the broth, teaching us about ranching, where are your students? Who have been your great teachers in life? That could be a book, a philosophy, a documentary, could be your grandfather. Like, who have you learned from that we might be able to follow in the footsteps of? You know, I, and I don't know if we could, you could follow in the footsteps. I mean, you, I wasn't expecting that question. I love it. Uh, I just had a dear, dear friend of mine that, uh, that became my mentor. He's actually was a, uh, he was a, uh, chiropractor, uh, by trade. And, uh, but on the side, uh, he would have counseling sessions. And when I first heard about him, of course I went to him because, uh, he was known all across the country actually for, uh, for his uh, chiropractic skills, so to speak. And so when I first heard uh, through some friends that he also does a little counseling on life, just general questions on life, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll set aside another half hour, maybe an hour to sit and talk with him. But, uh, uh, you know, no can do. It was, uh, it's either a four or a five hour session and it may even go longer. And you would think, how could I possibly do that? Well, of course, uh, my, the four or five hours went by and in my mind in minutes. And, uh, uh, so I've, I've always cherished my friendship with this particular individual and he's, he's since passed on now, but, uh, he's always someone that just taught about, uh, life in general and, you know, and just the natural part of it. And, uh, so, I mean, I could go on and on on that and I know it's off subject, but so, so I, I don't have a, a Gandhi that I'm following. It's just, it's just a, a wonderful local gentleman that, uh, you know, became my, uh, my mentor. That's wonderful. I know exactly what you mean too. When you when you have someone who's kind of a conduit for a message and it's coming through to you, uh, time does tend to stop. You know, it's like it does. Or, or not stop, but it's just like time. You know, five hours go by and you look up and you go, "Wait, what happened?" You know, how did I not get bored or distracted? I know exactly what you mean and. And also, you know, I mean, some of the, the saints that I've met happen to be cab drivers and just random people that no one will ever know about. They just lived a humble life, but they had some answers to things that perplexed me. So, yeah, oh, I really, no question. I really appreciate that. Well, I'll I'll let you off the hook with one then, Greg. <laughs> thank you, that's, Luke. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a meaningful one that I personally relate to a lot. So, I want to thank you so much thank for you. being on the show. Thank you for the integrity of what you do, and you know, providing us with with the great products that. That are available. It's, it's an awesome thing, man. And I'm so happy to just spread the word. Excellent, Luke. It's all good. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. So how do you like them bones? It makes you hungry, huh? I want to do two things. I want to go out on the plains and become a rancher, or I want to eat some goddamn meat. 
Very interesting interview with Greg. I learned a lot. I trust that you did too. If you want to hear more of these fantastic shows, you can go to lukestory.com and sign up for my newsletter right there on the homepage. And I'm going to send you notification each week when a new show comes out. And don't forget about your hookup over at azgrassraisedbeef.com where you can save 5% by entering the code LIFESTYLIST. You can try out some of their bone broth or grass-fed beef. It's all good stuff. You're going to save 5% with the code LIFESTYLIST at Arizona Grass Raised Beef. Thanks to our guest, Greg. Greg.